I love to plan. Planning, making plans, whether selecting which meals to cook for the week or figuring out where to stay and what to do on holidays. I like working through all the little details, developing a plan for how to proceed. Now there are some people who like to take things as they come, be spontaneous and carefree, see where the day takes them. I admire those people, but that is not me. I instead subscribe to the catchphrase of an American character, or well, character from a famous American 1980s action TV show called The A-Team, who says, I love it when a plan comes together. How about you? Are you a planner? Or do you like to go with the flow, as they say? And why do so many of us spend so much time planning? I mean, for me, I think it's about managing expectation and limiting surprises. In some ways, it's about trying to exert control. I like to know what to expect, and a successful plan is one in which things go pretty much as expected. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem is that they rarely go, if ever, as expected, do they? There's a famous expression used by those in the military that says, a plan never survives first contact with the enemy. So what does that mean? Well, it means that there are almost certainly going to be things outside of our control that will change our plans in unforeseen ways, ways we cannot predict, and we're inevitably going to be required to react and to adapt to those changes. In fact, just last week, I had some good friends in town from the Middle East, seven of them, in fact, and I had a brilliant plan to take everyone to dinner at our local Centre Sportif. Um, and can you guess what happened? We're getting ready for dinner, getting everything together. It's just a little walk away, and I just go ahead and decide to, to call the restaurant to just you know, set aside a table, since we're a large group, and uh, come to find out they're closed for two weeks for the summer vacation. Well, there goes the plan. Now, we were able to adapt the plan and found a place to eat. No one went hungry. But it did show that I didn't have all of the information. And it also showed that other people and events had a say in my plan's success, didn't it? Well, in fact, that's exactly what we've been seeing as we've been examining the life of one of our patriarchs of the faith, Joseph, over the past two weeks. And as we'll see here, it turns out there's been a plan for Joseph's life all along. And there's one whose plan, unlike ours, never changes and can never be thwarted. And as we'll discover, one of the most profound mysteries of the universe will lead to one of the most profound truths for our lives. So if you have your Bibles with me, with you, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 45, verse 11, or verse 1, excuse me, 45, verse 1. Now, for those of you who may not be familiar with the Bible, I, I think it's a large enough group, there may be some who just aren't really as experienced with the Bible. I want to just point out that the big numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers. Uh, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. We're going to be looking uh, right at the end of that, so it should be fairly close to the front. And that's Genesis chapter 45, verse 1. And we're going to be jumping around a little, uh, so you'll probably be well served to keep your Bibles open as we examine God's Word together. Now, as you're turning there, let me remind us of where we are in the story of Joseph's life. As we heard from Tom two weeks ago, 
Joseph was the favorite son of Jacob, also known as Israel. Joseph was one of 12 brothers, but he wasn't very popular among his siblings, was he? In fact, he was downright despised to the point that his brothers sold him into slavery. His brothers sold him into slavery. Maybe it was because they were jealous of the way their father, Jacob, preferred Joseph. Or maybe it was because at one point, Joseph, clearly without a whole lot of self-awareness, felt the need to tell his brothers about two dreams in which he saw all of them bowing down to his authority. Now, whatever the reason, Joseph finds himself utterly betrayed by his family and carried out of Canaan down to Egypt as a slave. Then last week, Vincent told us of the incredible lows and highs that punctuate Joseph's life in Egypt. From being, being given amazing responsibility by his master Potiphar over the entire household, to being falsely accused of assault by Potiphar's wife and thrown in jail, to being placed in charge of the prison, but then forgotten, to finally being given supreme control over all of Egypt, and second only to Pharaoh himself. Now in all of that, one thing was constant. Joseph never lost faith and continued to trust in God. Now, as we conclude Joseph's story and his life, we see that there has been a family reunion of sorts. Joseph's brothers have come to Egypt seeking relief from this deadly famine that has plagued the entire region. Uh, they appeal to Joseph for aid, but they don't recognize Joseph. What will Joseph do? I mean, now's his chance for revenge. Will he take it? How will his brothers respond? What would you do? I think we're going to see that Joseph is a man who's been shaped by knowing God. And this allows him to do things and behave in ways that we find extraordinary. And through the life of Joseph, I want us to see three things. Now, for you note-takers, this is the outline of the sermon for today. Number one, God is sovereign over all. Number two, we are responsible for our actions. And number three, we can trust God's plan. So number one, God is sovereign over all. Number two, we are responsible for our actions. And number three, we can trust God's plan. So let's look back again at what Joseph does, starting in Genesis chapter 45, and what Karen read to us earlier. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me to preserve life. 
For the famine has been in the land two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So first we're going to see that God is sovereign over all. Now, sovereign means that he possesses supreme power and ultimate authority over the entire universe and everything in it. And on one level, that makes sense, right? I mean, after all, the book of Genesis begins with showing us that he created everything out of nothing. But in another sense, it's important to note that he is not simply the creator of the universe. He takes an active hand in all things that happen. Fundamentally, this means that God is involved in our lives, whether we acknowledge it or don't acknowledge it. It also means that everything that happens is God's will, and nothing, nothing happens outside of God's control. In the case of Joseph, it means that all the calamity and disaster that has befallen him was decreed and ordained by God. We see in this passage that Joseph mentions three separate times that God sent me. Now here, I want to underscore that this is not simply God taking terrible circumstances and turning them for his purposes, like some surprise twist ending to a movie. Nor is it merely God stepping aside and turning his back to allow evil deeds to take place. No, God meant for all of this to happen. He even sent the famine that plagued Egypt and the reason. Now, not just allowed it to happen, he brought it. We see in Psalm chapter 105, verses 16 and 17, it says, when he, God, summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. God designed all of this, even the evil that befell Joseph and the region as part of his master plan. So this means that evil is not pointless. It's not. It's not pointless. And as we'll see, God not only planned the famine, he planned the solution. Still, I mean, this can be a really difficult concept for many of us to accept, can't it? In philosophy, this is called the problem of evil. In short, the question arises, how can a perfectly good God who is all-powerful allow evil? Either he must not be perfectly good, or he must not be all-powerful. But we Christians, and as Christians, we know that he is both. I imagine each of us struggles at times with this issue, especially when bad things happen. And so when these struggles arise and, and doubts creep in, I wonder which way you tend to fall. Are you more likely to wonder about God's goodness or about his omnipotence, his sovereignty? Now, if you, weigh, if you wrestle with these weighty issues and you want to learn more about kind of how to understand some of these difficult theological concepts, I'm going to commend to you our Sunday class on Christian apologetics. 
You're going to learn there to identify some of the key objections that some people may have to our faith. And you're also going to learn how to apply theological arguments to clarify our beliefs against those objections. And the good news is, starts next Sunday, right across the street, 9 a.m. Likewise, our limited minds cannot plumb the depths of the riches of the wisdom of the knowledge of God. But we can take our cares, our concerns, and our confusion to him in prayer. We can approach him with our struggles and pray he comforts us in those times when we doubt either his goodness or his sovereignty. As noted African pastor Conrad Mbewe puts it, God is sovereign over evil, but he is not the author of evil. And this brings me to my second point. We are responsible for our actions. Turn with me a few chapters later to Genesis chapter 50, verse 15, that Karen also read for us. At this point, a lot has happened since Joseph revealed himself to his brothers. Brothers returned to Canaan, told their father Jacob that Joseph was alive. Then Jacob, his house, and their entire enterprise of massive enterprise of flocks and herds and people all migrated to Egypt to escape the flood. About 66 people, it turns out. So over those years, the famine worsened, but Joseph was able to manage it so that those in Egypt not only survived, they then thrived after the famine subsided. After 17 years in Egypt, Jacob died at the age of 147. Before his passing, however, he not only blesses each of his sons, he blesses Joseph's two sons, and he makes Joseph promise to take his body back to Canaan to be buried. You see, Jacob, Israel, did not forget that Canaan is the land promised to Abraham, to, to, Abraham, to Isaac, and given to Jacob and his children. Now, after Jacob's death, there was an enormous funeral procession. They all went up to Canaan for the burial. It says that it was included all the servants of Pharaoh and all the elders of the land of Egypt. And then after the burial, all who had gone to Canaan returned to the land of Egypt, including Joseph's brothers. That brings us to Genesis chapter 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of your servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about so many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Then he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. 17 years living in Egypt, and Joseph's brothers are still worried about reprisal for their evil deeds. 
No wonder Joseph wept. Now, to be fair, we don't know if this was because he was sad that his brothers still had lingering doubts about all that he had done for them, or because, as we sort of see here, they seem to actually ask forgiveness and acknowledge their sin. Either way, it's clearly an emotional event. And did you catch that part where they fall down before Joseph and proclaim, behold, we are your servants? I cannot help but wonder in that moment whether Joseph recalled back to his 17-year-old self whom we saw in Genesis 37 and the recounting of those dreams in which he told his fathers and his brothers that he saw them all bowing down to him. If so, this must have been further evidence to Joseph of God's work in his life. But it is important to note that Joseph's comfort does not in any way imply his brothers did not sin. They very much did. After they themselves acknowledge their sin, Joseph is quite frank in his assessment that his brothers meant evil against him. Now, at this point, you may be saying, wait a minute, Rob, aren't the brothers off the hook here? Don't they get a pass? I mean, we just talked about how God is sovereign and in control, how he's the one who did all this right. Come on, you just said God was responsible. Indeed, I did. So how do we reconcile God's sovereignty with our free will and responsibility for those choices? You ready for the answer? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. We don't know. Again, we see there's a profound mystery to how these two seemingly incompatible ideas can somehow both be true, but they are. As famous Reformed American theologian John Piper writes in his book, Suffering and the Sovereignty of God, a book I would highly commend to you and to those wrestling with these ideas, Piper writes, we should know that the fact that God has ordained everything, including our free choices, does not remove or lessen our responsibility, our guilt, or our liability to be punished for our sins. So there can be no doubt that what Joseph's brothers did was detestable and indefensible. We are right to condemn that action. And we must acknowledge at the same time that our hearts are equally sinful and capable of causing terrible hurts and pains. And I think our hearts, as sinful as they may be, as they may be we feel like that we have agency to make our own choices and control our own thoughts and actions. But those choices, whether good or bad, do not exist outside of God's control. As we read in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9, the heart of a man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. And yet, there most certainly are choices, and we will undoubtedly answer for them. The Apostle Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word that they speak. Such a statement raises a very serious dilemma for us. How can a sinful, disobedient, wicked people be made right with a perfectly good and perfectly holy God? Because we must recognize that our sin in no way diminishes God's goodness. In fact, as renowned Canadian scholar Don Carson writes, God is sovereign and invariably good. We are morally responsible 
and frequently evil. This is a deadly combination. It should disturb us tremendously that our thoughts and deeds are so at odds with what God expects of us that we have rebelled and fallen so far from the obedience that he requires of us? Because we are evil and he is in control, God actually uses our wickedness and our wicked actions to bring about his plans. This is what Joseph meant when he said what his brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. And again, I think John Piper's comments here are informative for us. He writes, the hardened disobedience of men's hearts leads not to the frustration of God's plans, but to their fruition. And as we're about to see, this means that there is a plan and that God's plan will never be thwarted by anything we could do. So let's turn to our third and final point. We can trust God's plan. Now, what is it that allowed Joseph to not repay evil for evil with his brothers? I mean, I asked you earlier what we would do in Joseph's place. Would you be able to forgive like this in the face of such horrible trail, but not just forgive, but then provide for your tormentors? In many ways, the story of Joseph is a story of forgiveness and reconciliation. And what we see is that it is Joseph's trust and faith in God that allows him to show such grace to his brothers. What's interesting to note is that unlike his father, grandfather, and, and great-grandfather, we don't see any evidence in Scripture of God speaking directly to Joseph as he did to Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. Now, sure, we have those infamous dreams, but there must have been times throughout his life where Joseph wondered what God was doing and, and why he was doing it. Yet, at no point do we see that Joseph's lack of understanding manifested itself as a lack of faith. Let me say that again. At no point do we see that Joseph's lack of understanding manifested itself as a lack of faith. And by looking back at his life, Joseph could see some of God's plan, and he clearly sees God's hand in establishing his steps. He believed that all the trials, pain, and suffering he endured was used by God to put him in position to then save a multitude of people, even his own family, from starvation and from death. But then, even at the end of his life, as he was dying, Joseph had faith in God's promises. You see, back during the famine, there was significant concern, concern when Jacob and all the others left Canaan that they were disobeying God by leaving the land he had promised. But we see in Genesis chapter 46, verse 2, that God spoke to Jacob on his journey to be reunited with his son Joseph in Egypt, saying, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again. That is why Jacob asked to be buried in Canaan. And as we see at the end of Genesis, Joseph too, before he dies, makes his brothers swear to also bury him in Egypt. And he reiterates God's promises in Genesis chapter 50, 24, which we heard. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham to Isaac, and to Jacob. Joseph may have believed 
that this was God's ultimate plan for his life. But we know that there was more. Close to 300 years later, God would raise up Moses to finally bring Israel out from under the bondage of Pharaoh in Egypt and eventually settle them back into the promised land of Canaan. The author of the book of Hebrews puts it this way in chapter 11, verse 22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. But even that was not the ultimate purpose of God's master plan. It would be another 1,500 years after Moses died before God's true purposes would come to life. For as we know, one of the brothers whom Joseph saved was Judah. And it would be through Judah's lineage that God would accomplish the plan that he formed from before the world began to resolve that troublesome dilemma that we spoke of earlier, how to reconcile his rebellious people back to himself. And this book, this Bible, is the entire story of that plan. In fact, up to this point, I haven't even mentioned the main character of the story. That person is Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah, as he's referred to in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. And this book and everything in it from start to finish is about him. See, the true purpose of Joseph's life, which even he did not see, was to point the way to another who would come nearly 2,000 years later and prove to be the ultimate savior of God's people, not just from a famine, but from an eternity separated from God. You see, the all-powerful, perfectly good creator of the universe, he sent his only son, Jesus, to live a life of perfect obedience to his Holy Father. Now, that's a life we should have but could not live because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, we deserve death as a just punishment for our disobedience to him. But the innocent Jesus was crucified on a cross and died a sinner's death in place of all of us who would turn from our sin and put our faith and trust in him. This means for us there is now no death, and we can look forward with joy to an eternity in God's presence. And how do we know that the sacrifice was sufficient to satisfy God's holy wrath? Because God raised Jesus from the dead three days later. And Jesus now reigns and rules at the right hand of his Father in heaven. Now maybe you're here and you're not yet a Christian. This good news of God providing a way for sinners to be made right with him is what we call the gospel. And it's the best news we could ever have. If you would like to know more, please come find me or anyone around you. I promise you there is nothing someone would want more than to share this good news with you. So, right, so now, I think we rightly see Joseph's, light, Joseph's life in light of God's master plan of redemption. I like as, as Tom put it two weeks ago, Joseph is a biblical type, a person who foreshadows the coming of Jesus. More than Joseph, Jesus is the ultimate example of evil being turned for good. Even his earliest followers recognized that what men meant for evil, God meant for good as part of his master plan. And Jesus is the ultimate display of forgiveness that Joseph showed. Peter in the books, book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 23, tells the people of Jerusalem, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
And again, in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, we read, For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, God, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place, meaning Jesus' crucifixion. And so again, we see that all of this was within God's control and part of his plan. Now briefly, as we can conclude, what does this mean for us? Well, first, I think it, it means like Joseph that we can trust God's plan even when we don't fully know God's plan. When trials come, when evil befalls us, when we are betrayed or forgotten, we would do well to remember that all of this is within God's sweet providence, his loving provision as he guides his people through life to accomplish his purposes. Now this requires patience and this requires prayer. But like Joseph, no matter the twists and turns of our lives, we can rest secure knowing the ultimate end of the story. And there's no better text in scripture for understanding this than what we heard at the beginning of the service from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter eight, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. Second, what does this mean for us? Well, I think it means we should feel free to show the same grace mercy and forgiveness as Joseph to those around us who do not deserve it. And more importantly, as Jesus showed us in redeeming us from our sins. Have you been betrayed by a friend? Forgive. Hurt by the church? Forgive. Struggling with anger and bitterness? Forgive as Jesus forgave. Forgive because Jesus forgave. When we learn to suffer well, and to forgive those who hurt us, we show a watching world a small taste of our Savior. And we may be used by God to help them, to help lead them to knowing Jesus. So as we've seen, unlike my carefully crafted, well thought out and detailed plans that don't survive first contact, God's plan can never be frustrated. And his sovereign will can never be thwarted. As we look back on Joseph's life, let us remember how God used all of it to accomplish his purposes. And as Joseph's life points us to the sacrificial life of Jesus, let us remember these words from noted theologian Paul David Tripp. At the center of the biblical worldview is the radical recognition that the most horrible thing that ever happened ends up being the most wonderful thing that ever happened. Let's pray.